We're going to turn now to read God's word. Uh, We're looking at the book of Revelation. We're working our way through Revelation. And um, we've reached a a section where there are seven letters to seven churches. These are letters written by Jesus to seven churches, seven kind of uh, churches in different situations, struggling with different things. And as we read through them, we find that Jesus is not just speaking to those seven churches, but speaking to us. And with the difficulties and the, the, the different struggles that we go through as we seek to follow Jesus. We could put up a couple of slides first just to help us um, with the book of Revelation. As, as I've said, there's an introduction. And, and then we have sort of seven visions that look at uh, the present to the future history, that same history from seven different perspectives. And then we have a kind of conclusion or a close at the end of Revelation And we're currently in the first of those visions. If we go to the next slide. Uh, It's a vision that began for us in verse 9. As uh, John identifies himself as the author and a fellow struggler, fellow sufferer, fellow persecuted Christian uh, with the churches. And then we had this great vision of Jesus that we looked at two weeks ago. And then we have the seven letters. If we go to the next slide, there is a a pattern with these seven letters. Uh, The middle three, uh, to Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis, Jesus is effectively saying, okay, but you could do better. And there are problems in the church, and Jesus is saying, I'm going to come and deal with those problems if you don't deal with them, um, but you're okay, you could do better. The two I put there in green, Smyrna, which we'll look at next week, and Philadelphia. Uh, Smyrna is the persecuted church, and Philadelphia is the small church. Jesus is saying, all good. You're doing okay. Keep on doing what you're doing, and you'll get to the finish line. But the two that I put up there in red, Ephesus, which we'll look at today, and Laodicea, which will be the last one, these are the two that Jesus is saying... You are in mortal danger. You are almost at the end of life. And if you don't deal with what's happening, there will be no future for you as a church. These are the two that Jesus has the hardest words for. The chilling thing for me is as I look at those, and if you look at them and read those letters, these are the two that are struggling or facing the dangers that we are the most likely to face, as we think today in the West. The danger of throwing ourselves into work without, no, without a heart, and a lack of love for God, or Laodicea is the, the problem of materialism, stuff, riches, uh, wealth, taking us away from Jesus. And when one of the commentators pointed out that pattern, I thought, whoa, we kind of think it's the persecuted church or the small church that's in the most dangerous place. Actually, according to these letters, we are potentially in the most dangerous of places. So that's just kind of an overview of of this vision. We're going to work through these letters one by one, and today we're going to work through the letter to Ephesus. So if you have a Bible, would you turn to Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 1 to 7, then we'll sing, and then we'll look at this passage together. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. 
Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. If you have a Bible, I know the text will be on the the screen, but please do open it to to Revelation 2. You can see then a bit more of the context of um, what we're looking at in each verse, how it fits together. I want you to imagine that you are having a routine medical. The last one that I had was when I changed doctors. And they said, well, because of your age, you're entitled to a medical. So come along. They took blood. They took blood pressure. They took pulse. They took all of those kinds of things and sent, sent the blood off to be tested. I want you to imagine you've had that medical and then you've been called in to see the doctor. You go in with a good deal of confidence. You swim two miles a week. You've just dug over the garden. Everything's fine. There's no problems. But you're a little bit disconcerted because the doctor is not smiling and has a very concerned look on their face. They say, I want you to send you away for some tests. I want you to go and take an ECG. I need you to go for some scans. I didn't really tell you too much about what's going on. What transpires after all of this happens is you have a massive problem with your heart that needs immediate intervention. How would you feel? You thought you were okay. You thought there was not a single problem with you. You were going about daily life thinking that your body was functioning well. When at the core, there was a fundamental issue. Maybe you would be in shock. Maybe there would be a sense of disbelief. It can't be true. Maybe you've taken pictures on your phone of the scans and the the, the x-rays and stuff on the screen just so that you can remind yourself, yes, it is true, because you just don't believe it. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, what do I do now? What's next? How do I get this fixed? How do you think the church in Ephesus felt as they read this letter from the Lord Jesus to them as a church. 
How do you think the congregation felt? They thought they were doing okay. They thought they were doing pretty well. But Jesus says there is a massive problem with your heart that needs immediate attention. Or what about the individuals? See, a church is a community, and we can see a church as a community and deal with a church as a community, but a church is also made up of individuals. And if there's a problem with the heart of the community, it's because there are problems with each of the individuals in the community. How do you think the individuals felt? They thought they were getting on okay doing well in their Christian life. And then Jesus comes along and says, there is a massive problem with your heart that needs immediate attention. We're going to walk through Jesus' diagnosis here at the church in Ephesus. And as we do, I think it will be helpful for us not just to ask the question, what does Jesus say about Ephesus, but to be asking a question of ourselves. Do we love Jesus? Do we love Jesus? Do I love Jesus? Remember, there's this community aspect. He's speaking to a church, but a church is made of individuals. So do we collectively love Jesus? Do I individually love Jesus? Let's walk through this letter together. Four things I want to tell you about the diagnosis here that Jesus gives to the church in Ephesus. The first is this. It's a loving diagnosis. It's a loving diagnosis. In verse 1, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Uh, Who's the angel? We kind of thought about that question last time. We didn't answer that question because I don't think it's that easy to answer. Uh, There are many different views from a guardian angel that looks after each individual church through to it being the pastor. I don't think either of those two extreme uh, views seem, they don't seem to me to, to make sense of the text. Maybe it's something in the middle. So we don't know exactly who it is, but we do know as Jesus writes to the angel, essentially he's writing to the church. This isn't a letter for somebody else to read and to think about and for the church to ignore it. He is writing to the church in Ephesus. There's something very personal here. Jesus, the Lord, the King of Kings, is writing to his church. And then what happens? Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven stars golden lampstands. Before Jesus communicates the message, Jesus communicates something about who he is. That's what he does in all of these seven letters. Before the church in Ephesus, or for us today, read what Jesus diagnoses, he wants us to know something about him. And what does he want us to know? He wants us to know that he's ready To help us. We have this picture of Jesus holding the seven stars. The the seven angels in his hand. And we saw last time that that showed a state of readiness and willingness to send out the help that the churches need in whatever situation they find themselves in. It reminded me of the end of Luke's gospel as Jesus ascends into heaven. 
we're told he leads out the disciples to the vicinity of Bethany. And then he lifts up his hands and blesses them. The blessing is essentially communicating to them the goodness of God, the grace of God, the smile of God, and saying, this is coming into your life. So his hands are up in blessing. And then while he was blessing them, Luke tells us, he left them and was carried up to heaven. And every time I read this, I notice that Jesus' hands aren't put down. He leaves and goes to heaven in a stance of blessing. And I think Luke wants us to understand that in heaven, Jesus is still in that stance of blessing. His heart is for the good of his people. I want you to imagine you live in a house that you rent from someone. And the person you rent from is a bad landlord. So the water goes off and you contact the landlord and he won't answer. There's plaster coming off the wall and you contact the landlord and he won't do anything about it. It doesn't matter what the problem is, how serious it is, he won't do anything about it. Realise I'm being sexist there. He or she, maybe it can be a female landlord. Uh, but eventually, you take your landlord to court and they are forced to do something about it. They don't want to, but in the end, they do it because they have to. Can I say, don't ever have that view of God? Don't ever see Jesus. <laughs> Like that. Jesus is not there in heaven saying, I don't want to help you, I don't want to help you, don't want to help you, don't want to help you. And, and our job is to somehow force him or persuade him or, or, or to catch him out through our prayer so he has to help us. But no, Jesus is with the seven stars, ready to send. He is in that stance of blessing, wanting God's goodness in our life. And he wants the church in Ephesus to know this. Before they get to what Jesus says about them, he wants them to know about him, that he is ready to help them. And secondly, he wants them to know he's there with them. He's there with them. The golden lampstands are the the seven churches. We saw that earlier in chapter 1. And where is Jesus? Jesus is walking among the lampstands. He's there in the middle of them. If you can think of any of the big empires of history, those, those of you who are still at school, maybe you're learning about some of the Roman Empire. Maybe you'll learn about something called the British Empire, which isn't really around anymore, but some of us um, kind of learned that it was, but wasn't. But, um, the British Empire, or maybe in the Bible we've got the Babylonian Empire, or we've got the Assyrian Empire, or the Greek Empire. Uh, these countries that took over other countries and had this huge expanse of land that belonged to them, but the governing of that land was done from a central place, often a long, 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 long way away. And there wasn't really much connection. And news took a long time to travel and a long time to get back. We think of Jesus, he's the king of a huge empire, the kingdom of God, that covers the whole world as as people come to faith in him all around the globe and covers all history. 
But Jesus isn't governing it from a place that's miles away from anyone else. Where it takes years for the messages to get to him and get back again. No, he's there with his people. Right in the middle of them. I love this description in Zephaniah 3 verse 17. The Lord your God is among you. A warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. Oh, it's beloved to unpack that verse a little bit more. Delight with you in singing. He's among us. He's with us. As we gather together as a church each week, God is with us. Jesus is here. And before Jesus says some of the hard stuff he's going to say here to the church in Ephesus, he wants them to know, I'm ready to help you, and I'm with you. This is not the words of someone who's out to hurt us. These are not the words of someone who's out to harm us. This is our Savior speaking. The one who died for us and gave his life for us. The one who rose for us. The one who loves us. The one who pursued us into his kingdom and calls us to share eternity with him. As as we go through this letter and as we consider its application in our lives, it might be that we find these words painful and difficult. Can I remind you, not all hard words are bad words. Not all hard words are bad words. If there is a serious problem, it is important that that problem is diagnosed and can be dealt with. And that is Jesus' intention here in this letter. He loves his church. And so he exposes the problem. That's the first thing I want you to see. It's a loving diagnosis. Secondly, it's a shocking diagnosis. It's a shocking diagnosis. Let me read from verse 2 to 4 and then we can just say a few, few things about these verses. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. The church at Ephesus... It's a church that looks good on the outside. A church that's impressive. Yeah, from time to time, people come to me and, and they say, oh, I'm going on holiday to such and such a place. Do you have a recommendation of a church I can go to on the Sunday when I'm there? Or I'm moving to, to such and such a place. Do you have a recommendation of a church? Or, or my children are going somewhere. Do you have a recommendation of a church? And normally... Um, If I don't know the area, I'll I'll go and have a look on um, the internet, on a few different sites that that point to different churches and and give a recommendation. And often that recommendation might be something around, is it evangelical? What do we mean by that? Is it Bible-believing? 
Does it hold to the truth of the Bible? And is the preaching of the Bible important and core at the heart of church life? Is it evangelical? And the second thing might be, is it reaching out? Is it seeking to share Christ with other people? Is there a kind of a liveliness about that? Is it evangelical? Is it reaching out? Well, have I just recommended that everybody goes to the church in Ephesus? Because here is an evangelical church. They were concerned about the truth of God's word. They test and reject that which doesn't fit with God's word, and they hold on to that which does. They have a solid statement of faith that is clear on all the matters that it should be clear on. And they are working hard for Jesus. They are serving. And all of these things they are doing in a context where it is hard to do them, but yet they are consistently persevering in those things. That's the church in Ephesus. A good church. A solid church. A dependable church. But almost a dead church. Why? Verse 4. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Or you may be reading in a different translation, you've abandoned your first love. Something has gone wrong with their love. What, what type of love is this? There are two types of love in the Bible, isn't there? There's love for God and there's love for one another. Um, they're not separate. They, they, they connect together. God loves us, therefore we love him. And out of the overflow of our love for him, we love one another. It's very much uh, together. So I, I'm, in a sense, focusing on... Um, what I see is the centre of, of love, which is love for Jesus, but it does also include love for one another. At, at some point in their life as a church, they've started to lose that love for Jesus. And they haven't noticed it. They haven't seen it. They haven't been bothered about it. And it's dwindled and dwindled and dwindled. It wasn't always the case. In Acts 19, we read of the start of the church in Ephesus, a church that was on fire with the reality of God, with the spirit of God, and filled with a love for God. Two clear proofs in that chapter that they loved Jesus. For two years, every single day, they had church together. For two years, every single day, they met together to learn about Jesus. Now, that's quite something, isn't it? If I was to say, we're going to have another service tomorrow morning, how many of you would be here? But Paul had services day after day after day, and they met together. They loved Jesus. And the... Luke tells us in Acts of one particular group of people that had been involved in witchcraft... And when they became Christians, they, they brought their books to burn. We read it's 50,000 silver pieces it was worth their books. That is millions of pounds worth of books. And they just burnt them. Why? Because they'd seen what Jesus had done for them on the cross. They saw how precious Jesus is. 
And nothing was too much to give up for him because they loved him from their heart. I want you to imagine you buy a car. This is your dream car. It's a special car to you. Uh, You've been saving. You buy this car. And each week, you wash the car. You hoover the car. You put a new air freshener in the car. And you keep it immaculately clean. But you never, ever service the engine. Ten years later, the bodywork is pristine, but it's spluttering as it goes down the street. But still, you don't service the engine. Eventually, the car dies. There's no rust on it. That's immaculate. All the outside, all the externals, it looks like a great car. Everyone walks down and says, oh, what a fantastic car you have. But it goes nowhere because the engine has fallen apart. That is what's going on in Ephesus. Externally, they look a great church. They are busy and they are holding on to the faith. But their heart has died. They're no longer loving Jesus. Here's a question. Would Jesus say the same about us today? Would Jesus say the same about us as a community of believers? Would Jesus say the same about us as individuals? I had a text through a few weeks ago because um, I said, if anyone's got questions on the book of Revelation, do please uh, let me know. The person who sent it isn't actually here this morning, and so maybe they'll pick it up on the recording. Uh, the text said this, what does a loveless church look like? And the reason they asked the question is because whenever they've looked in the commentaries, that's never really answered. What does a loveless church look like? My answer would be it could look like many things. But what does Ephesus look like? (coughs) Externally, it looks very similar to us. What do we value? We value truth, don't we? We're always clear on that, and that's a good thing to value truth. Jesus says it's a good thing. We, We value Bible preaching. We value trying to be close to the Bible. Let the Bible show us that God's word show us how we should be as a church. We value that. We value hard work. We value faithfulness and perseverance. And those are good things. The Bible says we should value those. But what about our hearts? And the way we do church. And this is quite a, a lot of this is a challenge for, for us as leaders. For, for me, it's kind of the main preacher. In our preaching, in our services, in our fellowship, what are the priorities there? Is love for God and having that love for God being stirred and encouraged, is that a priority in church life? Or what about for us as individuals? Do we love Jesus? How much do we want to spend time learning about Jesus and discovering more about Jesus? Are we willing to give up our houses, our expensive holidays, our family time, our comfort 
to see Jesus honoured? Is there anything too much for us to do for Jesus? Because we love him who first loved us. The shocking diagnosis. Thirdly, it's a needed diagnosis. It's a needed diagnosis. Look at verse 5 with me. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent, Jesus says, and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Two reasons why Jesus had to tell them that their first love had been kind of lost. The first reason is simply this. Unless he told them, they wouldn't think to change. Jesus wants something to happen in the church at Ephesus. He wants them to repent. But they're not going to do that unless he points out that there's something to repent of. That's why we have these two R words. Remember, look back, Jesus says. See what you were doing. You were on fire for me. There was nothing too much to give up for me. But now look at your hearts today. Take that picture of a fire. In a fire pit um, that we have sometimes in our garden. If we, we light the fire. And there it is on, on the evening. It's, it's roaring in the fire pit. And then you come to that fire pit in the morning and it's all kind of died out. Almost gone. He says, see the blazing fire of your love so many years ago. And now look what's happening today there's a problem Jesus says remember see the problem and then repent what does that mean say sorry in part but more than that stop what you are doing stop ignoring the lack of love stop covering it up with your work and your your com- um, saying it's okay because we're committed to the right truth. Stop it, Jesus says. And turn around. And ask me to fan that love into flames. And seek to encourage love in one another. It's a needed diagnosis because they wouldn't change without it. But it's also needed because this is absolutely serious. Look what Jesus says. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. The lampstand is a picture here of the church. I think Jesus goes with the lampstand because it's giving light Uh, And it speaks of the church's role as a witness to Christ, the light of the world. Um, It speaks of the the fire of the Holy Spirit being within the church. And and that's what enables us to give that witness to the light. There's lots of things about this lampstand picture that we can see the reality of what a church is and should be. But what does Jesus say? If you continue with only hard work and a commitment to biblical truth but no love 
I will take that lampstand away. I'm trying to think of a couple of pictures to, to help sort of give the impression of what, what Jesus is saying here. At the end of a Sunday, we've met here in the morning, we've met here in the evening, the last person to leave um, will go out that door normally and flick the lights off. In here for the day has been life, people, worship, God. Flick the lights off and it's kind of darkness. And this picture is Jesus says, if you don't repent, I will turn the light switch off. Oh, you might still meet in the building. There might still be a sign outside and a website out there on the internet. But there will be no light in the church anymore. One picture. But then I wonder whether it's more like um, the war room. You know, we see it in the films, don't we? The war room, we've got the maps and the units of, of, of army and, and things are represented on the board. And there's Jesus among the lampstands, kind of the war room. Here, here is his war that he is carrying out as he, he seeks to share the light of the gospel with other people and see people won and brought into his kingdom. That's the battle that's going on at the moment. And there he has the pieces, his church, his churches. And what's he saying to the church in Ephesus? If you don't repent, I will take you off the board. You will have no further part in my battle. This is last ditch stuff, isn't it, from Jesus? You barely have breath left in you, Ephesus. And here am I, your Lord and Saviour, ready to revive you, but you need to recognise the wrong and repent. Do we see how important this is? That are we willing to examine our hearts. I asked that question at the beginning. Do we love Jesus? Do I love Jesus? Are we really, really willing to dig deep into that question and let the Holy Spirit expose what is inside us? Is loving Jesus important for us as a church? You know, as I'm thinking of recommending churches to other people in the future. I'm going to add another one. Do they love Jesus? But am I adding that just because it's here and I know it should be there or because that really is important to me? As we gather together, is it a priority that we stir one another up to love Jesus more? As individuals, do we love Jesus as we used to? Do I love Jesus as I used to? Do I delight in him? Is he my joy like he used to be my joy? Because he's the one who saved me. Is Jesus a love in our hearts, one among many? Or is he everything? To me. Are we willing to examine our hearts? But also, are we willing to deal with a lack of love if we see it? 
I think this is really important. I, I don't know about you, but I find when I read God's word and I listen to preaching and the Holy Spirit shows me something in my life that isn't right. So he shows me that I don't love Jesus as I should do. I start to feel a bit uncomfortable. But too often I don't deal with that discomfort by coming to God and saying, I'm sorry, please show me this, please help me. I deal with it through distraction. That distraction might be entertainment. So this afternoon I might deal with it by thinking about the Arsenal-Liverpool game later. That distraction might be work. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll come up with a plan for better quiet times. Or or I'll, I'll go to the elders with a new ministry that we ought to do. And often our desire to work is because we don't want to face heart issues. We deal with it by doing something more. Or we come up with plans that we can put our hope, oh, it would be okay because I'm going on holiday there in the summer. And we distract ourselves from the prompting and the prodding of the Holy Spirit rather than getting on our knees and repenting. If we feel tempted to do that today, If the Holy Spirit is prodding us today over this, can I remind you, Jesus is saying, if you do not repent, I will take away the lampstand. It's a needed diagnosis. Then fourthly, it's a grace-filled diagnosis. We're kind of coming back to where we started. The love of Jesus in this letter. He begins and he ends with statements of his grace. Look at verse 7. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. If you are convinced this is a letter just for Ephesus, let that sentence convince you otherwise. The Spirit is speaking to not just Ephesus, but the churches, to all of us here. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What do we see of grace here in this last statement? Jesus is saying these words because he wants us to get to the finish line. Jesus is saying these words because he wants us to get to the finish line. Conquering here is finishing the race. Being there with him on the day that he returns. Today we heard Andrew finish the race and he's now with Jesus. And Jesus wants us to finish the race too. To get to the end, still believing, still loving, still holding on to him. If you were to enter a bike race, can you imagine that? That one of the spectators really didn't want you in that bike race and wanted to prevent you getting to the end. What might they do? They might get a stick and prod it into your wheel so you fell off. Or they might push and shove you to get you to fall off the bike. Jesus is not that spectator. 
He wants us to get to the end. And that's why he's speaking to us. Why does he want us to get to the end? Because he wants us to be with him in eternity. What's the promise here? To the one who conquers, the one who gets to the end, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the new heavens and the new earth that we get to and read of at the end of Revelation. Let me just read to you from Revelation 22. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And there will no no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Jesus wants us with him in eternity. And so Jesus diagnoses for Ephesus their lack of love and their need to repent. And is Jesus diagnosing that in our lives and our hearts today? That heart work is difficult work. It is easier to work hard than it is to honestly examine your heart. It is easier to put your name forward to help in a ministry than it is to come before God and say, show me the wickedness within. It is easier to write a clear (coughs) statement of faith than it is to repent of sin. But as hard as that is, the path of repentance is a path that is paved with grace. I mess up. What does Jesus say? Repent. Get back on the path. For you have a place in heaven reserved for you. Do we love Jesus? Do I love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Maybe your answer to that question is no, and the reason is that you've never been a Christian in the first place. Can I invite you to come and know Jesus, who is infinitely lovely and lovable? The Jesus who died so that you, through faith in him, could be forgiven. There is no one like him. And he invites you to come and know him today. It may be that your answer is, not as much as I used to. Can I encourage you, don't settle for that. Don't say, but that's what always happens. New Christians are enthusiastic and then it always dwindles. Don't settle for that. Jesus won't let us. 
Remember where you were. Repent of a lack of love. And seek him. Let's pray. Father, if, if this is particularly a word to us as a church, a community of your people, will you show that to us today? If this is particularly a word to uh, us as individuals, will you show that to us today? We see here we need to love Jesus. And if we've neglected that, Father, show us the heights from which we've fallen. Bring us to repent. And will you restore us by your grace? Amen.